Three Strands is growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, visit us at threestrands.church. Um, if you're just joining us, we are in part two of a series called Balancing Act. Our, can you go back to the logo, buddy? Our mission statement at Three Strands Church is right on our logo screen. It's creating a culture of redemption where people are free. We want freedom here. Free to what? Experience the truth and grace of Jesus. And that's what this series is about. Because some of us really struggle balancing truth and grace. And we said last week, if you just give all truth, it's just all rules and do this, do that. Uh, people become like modern day Pharisees and very legalistic. And then if you flip to the other end of that and just all grace and everything's okay, just do whatever you want. God loves everybody. Then it's like there's no, you're not really loving them. You're not telling them the truth. But there is a middle ground. That's what this balancing act is all, all about. There's a middle ground between truth and grace. And Jesus was the master at it, at balancing those two things, truth and grace. So last week we looked at a, at a story of a sinful woman, a heartbroken a sinful woman in Luke. And today we're going to look at another story to see how Jesus balanced truth and grace. And today's is about a tortured loner. But if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, podcast. So there were times as a teacher um, when I would have a certain troubled kid in class and I thought, man, they, they really need to be locked up, okay? But with other kids, I would look at them and I would be like, I'd have compassion on them. And I would think, you know, if they ever would just surrender their life to Jesus, he would use them to do just big time things for him. And even in my own heart, some I wanted to see in jail, while others I wanted to see spiritually set free, even in my own heart, you know, not, not a good balance there. But how about you? How do you react when certain people are just bad news? They, they cause you trouble or are just simply out of control. Or maybe you have a family member who loses their temper from time to time, or maybe they're abusive. Or maybe you have a friend who's addicted to alcohol or drugs, a student who has an eating disorder, a coworker with a gambling problem, or maybe a spouse whose anger is just out of control. Or how about this? Maybe that someone is you. There's an area of your life that is out of control, and you feel frustrated and depressed because of it. Listen, the good news of the gospel is that God's grace, listen, is greater than all of our sin. That's the truth. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive our sin. He wants us to overcome it and to live in freedom. And guys, this truth is illustrated dramatically and miraculously in the life of a demon-possessed man that we're going to look at today in Luke 8, uh, verses 26 through 39. Um, if you have a Bible app, you can open it there. If you want to follow on with the verses on the screen, um, you can do that as well. But this guy here that we're going to look at today was completely out of control. He, he tortured himself and his community. But you know what Jesus did? He, he balanced it right in the middle. And he responded with healing grace. And this man became a positive testimony to his community about the eternal truth of Jesus. So let's jump in in verse 26. And uh, listen to what God says here, okay, in this story. Here we go. Verse 26 of Luke 8 says this. And so they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes. Now listen, 
You listen to 30 preachers preach this, they're going to pronounce that word 30 different ways, okay? So you can call it Gerasenes, I don't care. I'm going to call it Gerasenes because you don't know how it's pronounced either, okay? So uh, that's the way I'm going with it today, rolling with that. Across the lake from Galilee, as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was, picture this, okay, possessed by demons came out to meet him. Can you imagine this in your head? For, for a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. Now listen, this was a tough one this week because demon possession is a complicated subject. But the Bible teaches us that there is a war going on in the spiritual world. That's Ephesians 6.12. It says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Look at the scripture. But what are we fighting against? Evil rulers and authorities in the what? Unseen world. That's really who you and I are fighting against. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits where? In the heavenly places. Ever thought about that? That the struggles I'm having, there's a spiritual war going on. Listen, I know this is spooky to some of you, but it's true. There are angels, created spirit beings that we seldom see who are messengers of God. That's the truth. But there are fallen angels who we call demons that we don't see that are ambassadors or messengers of Satan. Some people like to believe in the angels, but they don't want to believe in demons. They're both very real. There is a constant conflict raging daily for the souls of people. And listen, it is God's will that people become so committed to him that they can echo what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20 when he said this. He said, my old self, that's, that's dead. It's been crucified with Christ. It's not even I, I who are living anymore, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so I live in this earthly body by how? Trusting in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. But guys, please hear me. Satan's goal is that people become so involved in sin, caught up in sin, that, listen, demons possess and control them. That's Satan's goal. I read about a fifth-grade boy back in the day who, who he just drove his teacher crazy every single day, just got on her nerves, and, and, the, and the teacher couldn't stand it any longer. And finally, she, you know, you, she wouldn't get away with this today, but finally she just grabbed him by the shoulders, and she started shaking him until his teeth rattled together. And she told him, she said, I believe the devil's got a hold of you. And the little boy looked up her to her, and he said, I think he does too. <laughs> Satan does seem to get a hold of some people, doesn't he? It's not always as violent a reaction as this man in Luke 8, but sometimes he just gets a hold of people and leads them to forbidden behavior. The Bible says that the de devil entered into Judas, remember that? And he betrayed Jesus, forbidden behavior. Sometimes it's supernatural insight, like in Acts 16, 16, when Paul encountered a young woman who was possessed by a demon, and she brought her masters a lot of wealth, made them a lot of money with her ability to tell the future. Movies back in the day like The Exorcist, Poltergeist, and several others showed portrayals of demon possession. The Exorcist used to scare me to death, I ain't gonna lie, okay? Still, I don't watch it, but, um, but the truth is, guys, I think people like Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, uh, 
several others, I think they crossed over that line as well. But when we read through the Bible, it seems that demon possession was much more common in Jesus' day, but it's not common in other biblical errors or, or even in the age in which we live. You ever thought that when you're reading through the scriptures? Like, man, it seems like it's every other page, and I don't really see a lot of that. I mean, I've been alive for 46 years, and I can't say for certain that I've ever seen anyone who was possessed by a demon, and then the demon was cast out other than that day that uh, Heather stubbed her toe in the shower when she was getting out. That's a little different, but I'm just joking. Um, but, but why not? You know, why not? Well, I think there are several possible explanations. One is that our country feels like it's morally imploding, doesn't it? But while that's true, America would still be considered a Christian nation with 205 million of us in this country, the largest in the world. And so maybe, I don't know, the church has controlled Satan's efforts to some degree in this country. Missionaries in other countries report clear cases of demon possession, but they're very rare here. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that one. But another explanation is that there's lots of demon possession still, but we just don't identify it properly. We explain it away as some mental disorder, and Satan's kind of content to work undercover. Dr. Carl Menninger, a famous psychiatrist, once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, then 75% of them could walk out the next day, he said. Maybe we've given medical names to behavior that's really inspired by demons. Ever thought about that? Well, we don't know a whole lot about demon possession, but I want you to notice what they did to this man in Luke 8. He was physically deprived. For a long time, he says he hadn't worn clothes. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned uh, that God had clothed them as a sign of modesty and submission? You ever notice that when Satan gets control of people, he, he seeks to get them to remove their clothing in public as a sign of immodesty and defiance? This, this man, it says he ran naked and lived in the tombs. Now, the tombs where he lived, they weren't like cemeteries today like we have. They buried people in caves. Uh, this man was homeless. He, he escaped the elements by crawling back into these underground chambers with like skeletons and stuff, you know? He was physically deprived. He was also spiritually defiant. Look at verse 28. This is as soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and he, and he fell down in front of him. And by the way, I was trying to get some people to role play this scripture with me this morning, but I couldn't get anybody to play the demon. It's crazy. Like, all you do sound like a demon and nobody would do it. So Raven tried. She made some squilly voice, but it was not demonic. So I needed a demon's what I needed. But anyway. It says, um, sorry, then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. You see, a person controlled by Satan is not interested in spiritual things. In fact, listen, they become angry and defiant when Jesus is mentioned. They see him as a threat. They see Christians as harsh, cruel, and intolerant. They see the church as an enemy. 
Now, this man was also socially despised. Look at it in verse, the second part of verse 29. This spirit had often taken control of this man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. He was a loner. The residents in that area, they were terrified of him. And they tried to restrain him, but he had this uncommon strength that allowed him to snap his shackles. Police uh, sometimes tell about people who are under the influence of angel dust or or PCP, and they say that sometimes they have this drug-induced strength, almost kind of like having superhuman strength, you know, like Chad Sterrett, um, where where it would take like several police officers to subdue them. This man was so strong, he would just snap the chains. He was also emotionally disturbed. The scriptures say that night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. And he was personally miserable. He didn't sleep much. He cried out, cut himself, mutilated his body. And when asked what his name was, he gives this pitiful reply. Later, he said, my name is Legion. Now, a legion was a Roman army of over 6,000 soldiers. This man was tortured by many demons. Local residents were scared to death of him. No one wanted to go near him. Parents would warn their children, I bet, stay away from him. You know, when I was in middle school, uh, Tony Smith was in college dating my older sister, Charlotte, and he worked for Plateau Pest Control spraying bugs. And he asked me to go help him is what he said, but what he really meant is he wanted me to be a buffer and he would buy me lunch at Arby's. That's what he really meant, okay? He wanted me to be a buffer while he sprayed. But uh, he took me up to Parker's Lake one time, and I was like in seventh grade, to this nursing home. Uh, I think it was called like Cumberland Manor. So I don't know. I don't even know if it's still there. But he, he went there to spray one day, and as soon as I walked in this place, I got an eerie, eerie feeling. This was not your typical nursing home. As soon as I walked in, I'm kid you not, this elderly woman with, woman with big eyes got right in my face and said something strange to me. Right when I walked in, I was just creeped out. And I'm 12 years old here, right? And, and then this man, this is true, starts chasing me around the room yelling, come here, come here, boy. And I was scared to death. And I got out of there as quick as I could. And, you know, I, I think I broke the record, uh, world record 40-yard dash that day. And I've never been back to that nursing home. It may not even exist, but I'll never go back. But here's this man who's the most unattractive, unloved, undesirable individual in the region. And when Jesus and his disciples uh, arrive on the shore, the disciples were like me in that nursing home. They were terrified. Uh, Apparently, they came ashore at night. And they were probably tiptoeing behind Jesus, just hoping that the one who had calmed the storm would protect them. And then all of a sudden, this wild man comes at them from out of the darkness, screaming at the top of his lungs, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? And I imagine it would be something like we would see in a horror movie. Late one night a few months ago, I walked into Maddox's bedroom, and, uh, but he was in the shower. And I saw where he had been, he'd been laying in his bed. Uh, the covers were all pulled back, you know. His lights were all off except for the one closest to his bed in his closet there. Um, but I figured he would, he would see me, you know. 
But a few minutes later, he walks into his room and he goes into his closet, walked right beside me like two feet. And guess what? He didn't notice me. Okay? And so he gets dressed and does his stuff and he walks out of his closet and was standing two feet from me when I said, Hey, Maddox. And that day was the day that he broke the world record for the high jump, okay? It was impressive. I laughed for an hour over that. And, Dad, I hate you. I'm going to get you back. You know, all that kind of stuff. But he was scared, okay? Jesus and his disciples came ashore, and this man just comes running, screaming toward them. And I love Jesus' response in verse 30. Jesus demanded, What's your name? What's your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. What's your name? Jesus didn't run away. He didn't condemn him. Jesus was full of grace and compassion. Think about it. He had created this man. He, he knew who he was, and he loved him. The demon said, we, we know you're going to cast us out, but don't throw us into the bottomless pit. Now, that's interesting. Bottomless pit? It's not the same Greek word used for hell as we would think. It's only used three to four times in the Bible, and it means the abyss, the deep. So I don't really know, but it must be some undesirable place where the demons are restrained by God. Look at verse 32. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. And the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. And so Jesus gave them permission. And then the demons came out of, came out of the man and entered into the pigs. And the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. What a story. That was probably the first case right there of the swine flu, if I was guessing. Okay? I don't know. I'm just guessing. It's not in the Bible, but. Now, there's a lot about this story that I don't understand. I'll just be honest. I still have lots of questions after studying that. Uh, why would demons want to enter into pigs, right? I mean, do they think they'd be safe? Were they so scared of being like disembodied that they would rather be in animals? And why did the pigs run over the cliff? Did, did the demons do that to them, or was Jesus just kind of dramatically illustrating to the crowd that the demons had been cast out of the man? But the biggest question is, why were the townspeople upset about this? Why? Look at verse 34. It says, when the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town in the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, listen, fully clothed, perfectly sane. And what were they? They were all afraid. Now, you would think it would read something like, and they were all ecstatic that the man had been freed and the danger had been eliminated, right? But that's not their reaction. Their response was they were afraid. Well, what were they afraid of? Were they afraid of change? I mean, some people prefer to keep things the way they are, even if they're miserable, because at least they know then what to expect, right? Or were they afraid that the miracle was temporary, 
and that the, at any moment the man could revert back and start chasing them. I think that was probably a factor. I think there are times when we ought to be a little bit skeptical, and this is one of them. But I think they were also afraid of losing money. They were pig farmers, and Jesus had just wrecked their livelihood. I mean, who cares about that crazy psycho man that was cured? They may have thought that, right? I mean, I mean what about our livelihood? Money may have meant more than mercy to them. So they said to Jesus, we're not happy with you. We're not happy with you. And look at verse 36. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave us alone. For a great wave of what? Fear swept over them. So you know what Jesus did? He returned to the boat and he left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. They said, we don't want you here, Jesus. You make us really uncomfortable. Please leave. And Jesus was so full of grace. He didn't force himself on them. Even though he was totally in the right, he left. He granted their request. Look at verse 38. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him home, saying, No, go back to your family and tell them everything that God has done for you. And so he went through the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that's greater than all of our sin. I want to leave us this morning with four practical applications, four take-home lessons that we can apply to our lives from this story. And the first one is this. Satan's goal is to enslave you. Don't give him a foothold. Okay, this is, we're applying this to your life. Listen, Satan wants to enslave you. Don't give him a foothold. He wants to make us slaves. And guys, there's a lot about demon possession that I don't understand. But I do know that Satan is the father of lies. He will entice us with love, freedom, and fun. But in the end, it will enslave us. He's out to kill, steal, and destroy us, the Scriptures say. And you know, Satan tempts us in the areas that we're most weakest in. So we need to stay alert. Do you ever struggle with certain sins and it feels like you just can't help but give in to them? Well, we, we, we don't have to. We said last week that once we've been saved, we're set free not only from the penalty of sin, what, but also from the power of it. But when you and I start walking in the flesh and not the Spirit, there is something that takes over our hearts that's stronger than our willpower, and we feel as if we can't stop it, don't we? That's true for a lot of different sins, whether it be alcoholism, drugs, gossip, Stealing, lust, selfishness, or maybe just hating people. Said this last week as well, and I think I saw it on maybe a Facebook post you put out there, Chad, but it says this. Sin will take us farther than we want to go. It will make us stay longer than we want to stay, and it will cost us more than we want to pay. That is so very true. Guys, Satan wants to do with you and I what he did with this demon-possessed man. He wants to make us feel lonely. He wants to make you feel insecure, miserable, depressed, and enslaved to all kinds of unhealthy passions. 
Look at 1 Peter 5, verse 8. It says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, just looking for somebody to devour, just to take them out. So let's not make any mistake about it. Satan wants to destroy us. All right? Avoid him. And I want you to remember a couple of things, okay? The first one is this. Satan is God's enemy, but he's not God's equal. Satan and God are not equal, okay? And the second thing I want you to remember is Satan has been defeated, but he's not yet been destroyed. He's been defeated, but he's not yet been destroyed. A South American missionary woke up one morning, imagine this, found a giant anaconda snake in his little hut there, little house. Over 25 feet long, right there, curled up, scared him to death. And so he snuck out the window. He went and told his villager friends, come help me. You got to help me. And so they, they went back to the house with him and they looked through the window and sure enough, there it was. And one of the villagers said, I know what to do. And he grabbed his rifle and he stuck it through the window and bam, he put one bullet right in the head of that big snake. And that snake started thrashing around that house violently. They just stood there in disbelief as they heard this crashing and shaking and vibrating. And then, after a few minutes, it started to slow down. And then finally, it was quiet in the house. When they went inside that house, they saw that that snake had caused incredible damage and chaos inside that little hut. You may be thinking, okay, I know the Bible says that Satan, the great serpent, is defeated, but something must be wrong at my house because Satan seems to be wreaking havoc in my life, in my relationships, with my sin struggles. Well, guys, listen. We live in a season of the evil one thrashing around. Jesus put a bullet in his head at the cross, but he's still thrashing around wreaking havoc in people's homes. Satan's final defeat is imminent. It's going to happen. Soon enough, it will be permanent. But in the meantime, our struggle with spiritual evil will continue as it attempts to thrash our lives. But take heart, one day he will be destroyed. Second thing is this. Jesus' grace can completely set you free. Seek after him. It can completely set us free. Let's seek after him. Look at James 4, 7. It says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But guys, we can't just obey half of that verse and resist the devil, and he'll run, because he'll come back. But if we obey the first half of the verse as well, and humble ourselves before God unconditionally, and then resist him, he will run away, the scriptures say. And I don't know about you sitting here this morning, but maybe you feel stuck so deep in an addiction right now that you wonder if there's any hope in trying to even overcome it. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus' grace can help you overcome it. You may have so many wounds and scars from your past that you've, you're just convinced that nobody wants to be around you. But Jesus is your friend that sticks closer than a brother and he wants to change you from the inside out. Maybe you have so much bitterness inside of you that you dislike most Christians and you feel uncomfortable in church. 
But Jesus is so full of grace that he refuses to be intimidated by your defiance. And he's asking you right now here this morning, hey, what's your name? Can I help you? Do you want to be made whole? The Bible says in Romans 5.20, the second part of that verse says, but as people sinned more and more, what happened? God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Isn't that good news? The third thing is this. Some people may resent your transformation, but be tolerant of them. Be patient with them. You know, there were people in the region of the Gerasenes here who didn't rejoice at, at all over this man's deliverance. In fact, they resented it. And when our lives are changed by God's grace, listen, not everybody's going to be happy about it. Your parents may say, wasn't the religion I gave you as a child good enough? Maybe their pride is wounded. Or your spouse might say, are you going to start giving away 10% of all our money? I mean, you don't expect me just to tag along with you to church every Sunday. Maybe their comfort zone is threatened. Your friends might say, hey, I like the old you better. That cut loose and, and party you. You were much more fun to be around back then. And now you're into this whole church and God thing. You, might, you, you probably think you're better than me, don't you? Their conscience may be disturbed. Guys, don't lash out at these people. Don't be intimidated by them. And don't nag or whine or play the victim. Show them that Jesus makes you a caring child, a more loving spouse, a more joyful friend, a better worker. Peter wrote to wives in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 and said, hey, even if some of your husbands refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. That's amazing. Last thing is this. Familiar territory may be your most fertile field. Be a witness to God's grace there. This guy at the end of the story that we read begged to go with Jesus, didn't he? To follow Jesus wherever he was going. But what did Jesus tell him in verse 39? No, 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 you're not going with me. I want you to go back to your family and tell them everything that God has done for you. And so he went all through the town proclaiming the great things that Jesus had done for him. You know, sometimes, guys, we, we, we think that if we were totally sold out to Jesus, then we would go be missionaries in Afghanistan or that we would all be preachers. And while God does call some people to be full-time missionaries, for many of us, he simply wants us to go back home and be a living, walking testimony of his grace. That's, for most of us, is the case. Maybe the local businessman who changes the way he operates to be more honest is a more powerful testimony to God's grace than the TV preacher who we don't really know. A husband who begins being more thoughtful of his wife. A wife who begins unconditionally respecting her husband. A student who is diligent in their studies. An alcoholic who becomes sober. A greedy man who becomes generous. A negative, complaining woman who becomes positive and joyful. Those are powerful testimonies to the grace of God changing a life. 
The woman at the well, remember her in John chapter 4? She'd been married five times. And the guy she was living with at the time, was not, she was not married to. Well, you know what? After Jesus met her, she went back to her hometown of Samaria and said, I want you to come and see a man who told me everything I ever did and loves me anyway. And many Samaritans came to know Jesus because of her powerful story. Remember? 1 Peter 2.11 says this. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war. Don't miss that word. War against your very souls. Now notice that he's, he's saying here that it's not going to be easy. That there's a war going on for your soul. But you can control these evil desires that are at war within you. And the very next verse in verse 12 says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Guys, glorify God for his grace that's changing you and making us more like Jesus. You may be familiar with the name John Newton. Uh, he was a sailor in the early 1700s. Now, sailors were known for being corrupt, profane people, and he was one of the worst. He was known as, listen, the great blasphemer. If you Google great blasphemer, his name pops up. He led other sailors in disbelief. In fact, John Newton sank so low that he became a slave trader who was once over, or thrown overboard, and he was rescued by being harpooned. That sounds like a, a rough life to me. But he was on this ship called the Greyhound in the middle of this terrible storm. And then he decided to call out to God for his grace. And at age 39, the Lord turned John Newton's life around. And for the next 43 years, he preached the good news of Jesus in London, England. He influenced the rich and poor alike. He influenced William Wilberforce, a member of the parliament, a key player in abolishing slavery. And then Newton began to write hymns for his church to use on Sunday night. And one of the hymns that he composed was entitled, Faith's Review and Expectation. The title was later changed to Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, he wrote, how sweet the sound that saved not a mistake maker, but a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed on that ship. Guys, only God's amazing grace could change a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor into a child of God. And only the amazing grace of Jesus could change a demon-possessed man like Legion into a positive man in his right mind testifying to the grace of Jesus in his life. And lastly, don't miss this, only the grace of God can change you and I as well. That's it. It's only by God's grace it's not going to be by any good works that you do. So I encourage you this morning, the band's going to come up in just a moment. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he wants you to put your trust in his amazing, 
life-changing grace. To just come to him and confess. Be honest. Be real. Confess your sins. And to be baptized into him and then allow him in his grace just to simply go to work in your life. I pray that you would make that decision to follow him today as we stand and sing this last song together.